Good morning. If all of you would like to come in, we want to have our full time with Melody this morning. Does everybody have a handout? Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. So this morning we're going to be hearing about Christina Rossetti and her spiritual journey and her poetry. And Melody is going to be presenting. And I think you all know Melody. And um, she is an avid reader and a scholar. And I'm sure that what you can share this morning is going to be fantastic. Thank you. Good morning, souls. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Christina Rossetti. Advent is a time when we hold both joy and sorrow, grief and hope together. Today, the third Sunday of Advent is Gaudete, or Rejoicing Sunday. As you'll hear later in the scripture reading from John, uh, John the Baptist comes in rejoicing when he hears that Jesus the bridegroom is coming. We pause the penitential purple of Advent for just one day and light the rose-colored Advent candle, which is the liturgical color for joy. And it is a true joy for me to share with you the work of this woman whose wise words continue to shape our Advent worship. Advent is triune. In one brief season, we look for the three comings of Jesus Christ. The first Advent turned our tidy understanding of the world on its head with the King of Glory laid in a feeding trough, worshipped by shepherds. The second Advent we celebrate every week in the Eucharist, the coming of Christ into our hearts through the sacraments, bread and wine. And the third Advent is yet to come, Jesus Christ's return in glory, for which we wait and watch and hope. Let's consider those three Advents as we learn about today's subject, Christina Rossetti. Please jot down any questions that you have and I'll answer them at the end. Christina Rossetti was born to write about Advent. She was born on the second Sunday of Advent, December 5th, 1830. She was the youngest of four children in a close-knit Italian-English family. Her mother was Italian-English and her father an Italian nobleman, a political exile from his homeland. The four children, Maria, Dante, William, and Christina, were born very close to each other between 1827 and 1830. Until the boys went off to boarding school, the children were educated together at home by their intellectual parents. Christina's father, Gabriel Rossetti, was a scholar on a mission to make Dante's Divine Comedy famous to the English people. Christina's mother, Frances Polidori Rossetti, profoundly influenced her faith and that of her sister, um, her sister Maria. Christina and her mother chose to attend an Anglican parish, Christ Church, that was not their geographic parish, but was swept up in the Oxford movement, which Matt explored last week. In many ways, this high church movement returned to rhythms of worship from the medieval era, 
All of the Rossetti siblings, in their own ways, were inspired by that time period. The Rossetti family was at the center of British creativity in the 19th century. The Rossetti boys, Dante and William, helped found the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, or the PRB, an artistic movement. The PRB returned to medieval subjects in art, that is, medieval literature, as well as saints and biblical and theological subjects that had become unfashionable in the Enlightenment. The PRB caused many controversies, one of them including Christina, and has had a lasting effect on art. Maria, Christina's older sister, explored a portion of medievalism too. She joined the Society of All Saints, which had been founded in 1851, and she spent the rest of her life as an Anglican nun caring for the poor. England had seen nothing like this since Henry VIII shut down the monasteries, which had been the only hospitals, the only women's shelters, the only retirement homes in that day. Institutions like poor houses and almshouses tried and failed to offer social services in their stead. Read any book by Charles Dickens to see how horrible conditions were for the poor in Victorian England. In the 19th century, the conscience of Christians had many burdens. One response of the Anglican Church was to found monastic orders to care for the poor. This Anglican return to monasticism has been portrayed in the television show and memoirs called The Midwife, which fictionalizes the real-life Anglican community of St. John the Divine, which was founded in 1848 and is still around today. Who knew the Oxford movement would lead to one of the most popular shows on PBS? <laughs> The four Rossetti siblings, Maria, Dante, William, and Christina, spurred one another on in creativity. They each picked a suit of cards, spades, diamonds, clubs, and hearts, which was Christina's, to represent themselves, and a talent. Christina's was poetry. Christina began publishing her poetry as a teen and immediately received widespread acclaim. Her contemporaries, Gerard Manley Hopkins and Robert Browning, were among the many poets and critics who admired her work. She labored alongside her sister in caring for what the Victorians called fallen women. She was an, also an early champion of animal welfare, campaigning for the anti-vivisection movement. She also taught Sunday school and Bible classes at Christ Church and elsewhere. Christina did not write for herself, but was widely published, read, and appreciated. In her adolescence, Christina modeled for the Virgin Mary for her brother Dante, which you can see on the second page of your handout. Um, there's a re reproduction of Girlhood of Mary Virgin. You can see Christina and her mother modeling Mary and Anne. Notice the symbolism, the stack of books showing Mary's education and virtue, a trellis making a cross in the background, and Mary stitching lilies, which stand for purity. In Ecce Ancilla Domini, Behold the Handmaiden of the Lord, Dante painted Christina as Mary during the Annunciation. The informal, undressed state of the future mother of God appalled the art world. Their brother William stood in for the angel Gabriel. See how Mary's finished embroidery of lilies hangs on the right side, with the Holy Spirit as a dove hovering over her shoulder. Notice the bright red before Mary and the blue behind her. These colors represent divinity and humanity, Christ's two natures, which combine in Mary to make the purple of Advent, Jesus Christ. 
Later on, Christina modeled for artist William Holman Hunt, who created one of the most well-known images of Jesus in the Victorian era, The Light of the World, which is on page three of your handout. In this painting, Christ is lit by a lantern he holds, and he stands at a door and knocks. Christina was one of many models, all the others male, to sit for Christ's face. Hunt worked on Christ's eyes, eyebrows, skin tone, and solemn expression when Christina sat for him. Together with the Virgin Mary paintings, we have a fascinating trio of an adult Christ who bears resemblance to his young mother. I can't help but think that during these modeling sessions, Christina was inspired to write about biblical and theological themes just as artists were visually depicting them. Today, one of Christina's most famous poems is Goblin Market, a poem about sisterhood and temptation that has been widely interpreted and analyzed. Her Christmas carols continue to be her most beloved contribution to English literature. In the Bleak Midwinter is a quietly profound poetic exploration of the three advents of Jesus Christ. It's one of our communion hymns today and has been covered by James Taylor, Julie Andrews, even Chris Tomlin, and He Shall Reign Forevermore. And a picture book version was one of Tommy DePaula's final projects. Christina wrote poems for nearly every feast and fast in the liturgical year. Her works draw from the whole council of scripture, and a scholar has put together a concordance that shows she quotes the whole Bible at the same rate. Living in the church year in community inspired her to write, often connecting the rhythm of the seasons inside the church with the changing seasons outside. Christina died four days after Christmas in 1894, suffering from Graves' disease and breast cancer. One of her favorite poems, This Advent Moon, was set to music and sung at her funeral. You can see on the first page of your handout a list of the three advents of Jesus. Consider those three advents in her poem, This Advent Moon, which is on page four. As Sarah reads, look for the rich biblical imagery in this poem and Christ's three comings. This Advent moon shines cold and clear. These Advent nights are long. Our lamps have burned year after year, and still their flame is strong. Watchmen, what of the night, we cry, hearts sick with hope deferred. No speaking signs are in the sky is still the watchman's word. The porter watches at the gate, the servants watch within. The watch is long, but times and late. The prize is slow to win. Watchman, what of the night? But still his answer sounds the same. No daybreak tops the utmost hill, nor pale are flams of flame. One to another hear them speak, the patient virgin's wise. Surely he is not far to seek. All night we watch and rise. The days are evil, looking back. The coming days are dim, yet count we not his promise slack, but watch and wait for him. One with another, soul with soul, they kindle fire from fire, 
Friends, watch us who have touched the goal. They urge us, come up higher. With them shall rest our waysore feet. With them is built our home. With Christ be sweet, but he most sweet, sweeter than honeycomb. There is no more parting, no more pain. The distant ones brought near. The lost so long are found again. Long lost, but longer dear. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, nor heart conceived that rest. With them are good things long deferred, with Jesus Christ the best. We weep because the night is long. We laugh for day shall rise. We sing a slow, contented song and knock at paradise. Weeping, we hold him fast who wept. For us, we hold him fast. And we'll not let him go except he bless us first or last. Weeping, we hold him fast tonight. We will not let him go till daybreak smite our wearied sight and summer smite the snow. Then figs shall bud and dove with dove shall coo the live long day. Then he shall say, arise, my love, my fair one, come away. Thank you so much, Sarah. Mm. Now let me be your poetry teacher for a minute. Understanding the method of the poetry helps us hear the music and the words, and thus to better grasp their meaning. On the first Sunday of Advent, Deacon Mary quoted Emily Dickinson in her sermon. Jeffrey Barbeau's talk that morning about Samuel Taylor Coleridge considered the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Christina Rossetti uses the same meter in this poem as Dickinson does. It's called common meter or ballad meter, and it's the same as the rhyme. Um, alternating lines of eight and six syllables. You can check the back of your hymnal for a metrical index of tunes and see how many are under 8686 eight, and its variants. One of the major projects of the Book of Common Prayer was translating psalms not only into English, but also into common meter, which gives us our psalter. If you can sing a poem to the tune of Amazing Grace, The House of the Rising Sun, or the theme song from Gilligan's Island, it's in common meter. The rhyming of this Advent moon is easy to hear. Clear, long, year strong, cry deferred, sky word. A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. This is one of the standard rhyming schemes for this type of poem. Finally, see the seven stanzas in this poem. Seven is a meaningful number in the Bible, pointing to perfection, completion, and wholeness. In Genesis, there are seven days of creation. In Revelation, there are seven churches, trumpets, seals, lampstands. The use of seven stanzas is intentional as the poem ends with completion, union with Christ at his second coming. Now that we can see how Rossetti constructed her poem, we can consider the meaning in her words, how her figural reading of the scriptures helps her imaginative devotion during Advent. Rossetti's poem begins beneath the moon of Advent, heart sick with hope deferred. A watchman reveals that the signs of Christ's coming are not yet in the sky. We are still watching for the light of Christ in the darkness. Then Rossetti moves to John 10, the great shepherd passage, with the porter watching at the gate. The watch is long and late. She repeats lines from the first stanza. Already we are tired of waiting at the very beginning of the poem. 
In the third stanza, Rossetti turns to Jesus' parable of the ten virgins or bridesmaids in Matthew 25. Five of the bridesmaids, the ones who speak in this poem, brought enough lamp oil for the long wait. Count we not his promise slack, they say, but wait and watch for him. They demonstrate true faith as they wait. And on page three of your handout, there is an image of hope, love, and faith by Christina's friend, Edward Byrne Jones. See how faith is portrayed as the, one of the wise virgins with her lit lamp. In stanza four, Rossetti lingers on the bridesmaids, noting how their hope is sustained in community as they wait together and encourage one another. Stanza five retells the promises of heaven in Revelation and 1 Corinthians and uses the image of a lost sheep from John 10. These words are inspired by the authorized or King James version of the Bible, which Rossetti used in her personal devotion and worship. In the sixth stanza, Rossetti returns to we, the first person plural she uses to narrate this poem. She links us, her readers, to the wise virgins to wait and hope together. And the poem's bridesmaids note they are in community with saints who have gone before. Yet this waiting is not a starry-eyed hope. It's not shaking a gift-wrapped box under the Christmas tree. It's weeping. As Rossetti so beautifully imagines, we do not weep alone. Instead, we weep in the arms of Jesus. Weeping, we hold him fast who wept for us. We hold him fast. In the final stanza, Rossetti turns to Song of Solomon, chapter 2, when the beloved comes leaping over the mountains and skipping over the hills, inviting his lover out from her seclusion by telling her about how spring is remaking the earth. Nearly word for word, she quotes verse 13 to end the poem, Arise, my love, my fair one, come away. Let's break into small groups for a few minutes to discuss this poem. What images stand out to you? Can you trace faith, hope, and love through this poem? What other connections with scripture do you find? I was crying that much the first time. I went through the talk because it's just so beautiful. <laughs> I think I need it right now. Can am I? Okay. <laughs>
right, let's gather together again. <coughs> Weeping, we hold him fast. Let's consider this image in the three advents we mentioned before. First, I think of Mary, the first person to hold Jesus fast while weeping. And later in the Gospels, we see Jesus in community with his disciples and with those who cared for him during his ministry. When Israel was under Roman colonial rule in the time of Jesus, weeping was a communal activity. Grief was a time to hold one another fast and weep together. Second, in the Eucharist, we hold him fast in the holy mystery. We invite him into our hearts and bodies every week. And third, in the future, when Jesus returns in glory, we will be able to hold him fast, resurrected, glorified body, embracing resurrected, glorified body. Imagine reuniting with your family after separations due to COVID, but with thousands of years of pent-up energy. The tumult of the holiday season can be a burden. I love the festivities, especially giving gifts, but this year our holiday celebrations will be tempered by the remembrance of family deaths, grief at new diagnoses, changing our lives, and sorrow over the ongoing conflict in the world. Advent, however, is a time when we can step back from the holly jolly and cry our tears. Sorrow lasts for the long night of Advent, but joy is born again on Christmas morning. We hold these together, but we do not wait and watch alone. As Rossetti points out, Advent is also a time when we can hope as a creative act in defiance against the darkness. Is there any more Advent-appropriate action than gathering in community and creating hope because of faith through love? I see this in the communal practice of creating faith, hope, and love in a family lighting Advent candles. I see it in creators and crafters making gifts for others. I see it in our clergy pouring themselves out in worship. I see it in the vibrant generosity of our St. Nicholas pageant. I see it in the music of our worship, in every cantata and choral performance and recital. I see it in the labor of making beds, setting tables, baking treats, wrapping gifts, cooking a feast. I see it even in the Nutcracker and Christmas movies when a eucatastrophe turns over all the sad things and makes them untrue. In the darkest part of the Northern Hemisphere's year, we defy that darkness with the light of Christ. Let's take a moment to create some Advent hope together. In her poem, Love Came Down at Christmas, Rossetti simplifies the complex theology of the incarnation into one word, you can follow along with your handout on page five or in the hymnal with hymn 422 as Marcus plays.
Thank you, Marcus. In the first advent, love came down at Christmas, humbled and lowly. In the second advent, love comes down in the Eucharist to our bodies and souls. In the third advent, love will come down again, saying, Arise, my love, my fair one, come away. As you can tell, I really love Advent, and I am also very passionate about women writers. Anglican women in particular have written wonderful Advent literature in their poems, sermons, and novels. I've listed a few of my favorites on your handout to keep the season going. I also have them up here if you'd like to come take a look. So before we close in prayer, are there any questions? Is she on the calendar? I see a, a prayer for commemoration. Is she on the Anglican calendar? Yes, on April 27th. I don't know why they, they chose that date, because it's not near her death date, but she is on the calendar. So it's just a random, I was about to ask this, that was the follow-up question. It yeah, I don't know the significance of that date for her, but. So I've written down Amazing Grace, House of the Rising Sun, and Gilligan's Island. Also that I need to watch Call the Midwife. But it's been a while since I've heard the word eucatastrophe. Yes. So can you tell us what a catastrophe is and then what a eucatastrophe is? Yes, of course. Um, this term was coined by J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And we all know what a catastrophe is. We've all had those in our lives when just everything goes wrong all at once, just an earthquake, a seismic shift. But for Tolkien, the idea of the you catastrophe or the good catastrophe is when all of the bad things turn over. And as he says, um, through the voice of Sam and Lord of the Rings, everything sad comes untrue. So it's that moment in the airport in a rom-com where they're running toward each other, deciding to get back together after the fight. It's, it's that moment when Christ returns in glory, when um, all of the, the messy things in this world end, and he brings us peace. Um, it's something to look for in every story that has a happy ending, to find that moment when the ring is thrown into the fire, when peace returns to the shire, and, uh, and goodness comes again to the world. You mean like in terms of eschatology, what we believe about the end times? Or? Yes. Yes. Um, I think for her in this poem, there's room for weeping if we need to sorrow through that catastrophe to get to the eucatastrophe, but there's also room to create something beautiful out of hope as she does by writing this poem. Um, as we look for the second coming of Jesus Christ, there is always room for both our sorrow and our joy. Someone once told me, I don't see how any Christian could ever be sad after knowing what Jesus has done for them. And that's just not true. That's not accurate to our experience. And, and Jesus wept when he was on earth with his community, and we have not lost that ability to grieve together. We hold both at the same time always. 
And I think this poem really explores that through the image of the wise virgins, the communion of saints, and us joining in that. Uh, when it, I don't know very much about Christina Rossetti, except I know like the boys and the girls kind of went two different ways. Mm -hmm. In you know, obviously they have this um, culture at their home that is so vibrant and fertile. But I wonder if there's something that kind of explains. I mean, one becomes a nun, the other never marries and stays with her mom and um, kind of remains Christian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's something you know in that that would explain that differential, or if it's just uh, painters versus poets. <laughs> yes. Um, so in the Rossetti home, the real bedrock of their faith was the mother, Frances. And she took over more of Christina and Maria's education. So we see her passing on her faith to her daughters in a way that the boys don't receive as they're educated by their father, who is an Italian nobleman and intellectual. Um, I don't know if there were also just personal inclinations and changes, um, but the story is that on Maria's deathbed, she was praying for the conversion of her brothers. And even though they, they were not um, fearful of religion, they had a great time painting a lot of um, religious subjects, they never came back to the church in the ways that um, the daughters never left. You alluded to the controversy she was involved in. Can you explain a little bit more her yes. own catastrophe? Yeah, that was um, the poem or the, the painting that was done when she was 19, I believe, or age 18 when she um, did Girlhood of Mary Virgin, 19, in Behold the Handmaiden of the Lord. Um, now seeing Mary in a nightgown at the Annunciation is pretty common to us. Other pre-Raphaelite artists also use that, but in 1850, Dante was the first to do that in the English Academy. And so it was very shocking for people who had always seen a fully clothed Mary at the Annunciation to see her in a nightgown. Even though today we think that's not very revealing at all for Victorians seeing her bare arms and just knowing that her foot was maybe poking out of the, the bottom of her dress was very shocking. But somehow Gabriel having a robe open at the side was, was just fine. <laughs> How was her poetry received? Was she very popular? Did she publish the poems? I know they were made into hymns. Yes, uh, she was very popular in her day. Um, she published a lot in journals, newspapers, that sort of thing. So like one by one, her poems would be out in public, but also during her lifetime, they were collected and published in books. Um, and Goblin Market was gathered and published like as a book and it was illustrated several times by her brothers, but also by, um, by Florence Harrison. And this, this edition was published in like the early 1900s. This is a reprint of it. Um, but her poetry continued being published. And I think her brother, William, who lived, oh, 
that's a typo. He lived until 1919, um, and he was steward of her legacy and wrote a memoir about her to introduce um, a fully collected version of her poems, um, which we have today as the, the Complete Poems, which is about as big as my head because she was a very prolific writer, and this is only her poetry. She also wrote commentary on Revelation. She wrote Called to be Saints, which is a commentary on the Feast of the Church and explores what it means to live in the communion of saints. So she did nonfiction as well as poetry. Gerard Manley Hopkins and Robert Browning were big fans. She was close friends with Lewis Carroll, who took many of their family portraits later in her life. So she, like her brothers, was at the center of um, the literati, the creative um, people of that day. on the church year. It's so strange that Keebles, the Christian year, is out of print. You can't find it. Is that, if you look, is that something we could meditate on through the year? Is it, is it worth investigating? Um, as far as I know, similar to Keebles, it's still out of print, but it's available online. Um, I've seen prayers from that put in other anthologies of prayer. So it's still known among people who are looking for those things, but I would really love to see, in addition to Goblin Market, which seems to have a perennial appeal, to see her other works reprinted. You also press. Yes. <laughs> this is just thinking out loud. Um, and I don't want to impute too much, like, read somebody's biography onto their poems too much, but, like, kind of thinking about John's question, I wonder if there's something in her early experience as a model for painters that might have informed some of that eschatological mm -hmm. viewpoint, right? If you're sitting, being painted, you can't, you're just waiting, and you don't know what it's going to look like, right? Like, it's, I don't want to stress that too much, but maybe there's something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, she sat for paintings that weren't necessarily portraits. So you can see on the, the first page a, a portrait by her brother Dante that we hope looks accurate and is compared to photographs we have. But in the, the Mary paintings, he changes her hair color to red to symbolize um, the Holy Spirit flames. And in real life, she had very dark hair. Um, and also when she sat for William Holman Hunt, as Jesus in the light of the world. He already had the face mostly working and she was one of the final models to get the skin tone. And you can see the deep set eyes and even the expression uh, that is not a portrait of her, but still some, something of the way she looks was made into that. And, and yeah, sitting for a painting takes a long time of being very still and I guess you can either enter just a lovely meditative state or you can have your thoughts running and, and thinking about something. And from what I can tell, she must have spent a lot of time thinking about the people and the themes of these paintings because it comes out in the many, many poems that she wrote about her faith.
Does anyone have anything to share about what came out in their um, discussions about the poem? Any images that stood out to you? There we go. Um, one thing we were talking about is just the way she like layers the Old and New Testament kind of together, right? So you have, like Jacob wrestling with the angel and the Song of Songs and like I think the Psalms too, you know, like all these things are like layered with the parables too and that's, I don't know, it's pretty skillfully done. Yeah, it is. Um, I mentioned the concordance that a scholar made of all the biblical references in her work and instead of organizing it by what's referenced in which individual works, they organized it by the books of the Bible. And when you compare the length spent on different books of the Bible, it does hold up to uh, where the weight of the text is in the Bible as well. She's not spending all of her time in the New Testament. She does kind of have an outsized appeal uh, to Revelation because she wrote her commentary on it, was fascinated by that her whole life. Um, but she explores a lot of different images in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And yeah, as you said, it's, it's layered in this poem. The Gettys have recovered, or have covered Love Came Down at Christmas and yes. um, In the Bleak Midwinter, yeah. Right, so it's a living tradition. What drew you to Rosetta in particular? Hi, Mom. <laughs> um, so I was homeschooled, and we did units on hymns when I was growing up to, to learn to sing, but also to learn about our faith. And we did one for In the Bleak Midwinter. So I have known this poem since I was maybe four or five, and it's always stuck with me. And my parents love James Taylor's version of it. It is on repeat all season. And so it has just always been in my mind, her words um, from that, that hymn that you'll sing at communion later today. And with my interest in women writers, especially Anglican women writers, Christina, I think, is our foremost Anglican woman poet. And she has so much to explore. All right, let's wrap up. Christina Rossetti is commemorated in the Anglican Communion on April 27th. So let's close with her collect. See how the writers figuratively read Rossetti's poem in this prayer. O oh God, whom heaven cannot hold, you inspired Christina Rossetti to express the mystery of the Incarnation through her poems. Help us to follow her examples in giving our hearts to Christ, who is love, and who is alive and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, 
in glory everlasting. Amen. Girl reading. Here we go. You got it. Um, and I think Mark's comment was really important because we're talking about how you can take biblical images and express them through art and poetry. And there, this poem, The Advent Moon, is just full of them. Uh, one of the ones we noticed was, For us we hold him fast and will not let him go except he bless us first or last. Does anyone know where that's from? Jacob, right, Jacob, Jacob, exactly. And isn't that a beautiful image of, I mean, here we are, we're taking the Old Testament and we're figuratively reading that into our relationship with Christ. And it's just beautiful. Um, and also we've got, um, we've got the uh, Psalm of Solomon in here. Um, yeah, yeah and the honeycomb. The honeycomb, right, yeah, the Song of Solomon. So. I just hope this has given you a vision for the way we can read, by, read the Bible and just be transported by the images that we receive in it. So I just passed out to you um, the O antiphons. And I know that last week, I, the reason I thought of this was because Matthew last week uh, included two poems by, Mike, by Malcolm Guide. And Malcolm Guide has written a whole series of poems on these O antiphons. And um, they're beautiful. I mean, I'm sure if you're really interested, you can get his book on Advent poetry, probably on Amazon is it, you know, electronically if you don't want to wait, but he's written a poem for each one of these. Um, so these antiphons, since the very early church, and when I was in Jerusalem, uh, six years ago, I believe it was, seven years ago, we were looking, we went down into the bottom of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and there we, we were in a catacomb-type church from the early church, and written on this hearth was each one of these O antiphons in Latin. And, I mean, it wasn't the whole thing, but it was, you know, O sapientia, O adnai, and I was, that's like a, basically a third or fourth century church, so... For me, that just shows how meaningful these are. And I would just encourage you this week, in your devotions, um, in your daily prayer, or around your dinner table at Advent, to read one of these each day. Because they're taken from the prophet Isaiah, and they are very, very beautiful. And I would like to end with, um, I think we've got a few minutes, well, maybe we don't, but the poem that, um, shared last week was O Radix, and I just love this. If you didn't get a chance to read it, I'm just going to read the first few lines. All of us sprung from one deep hidden seed, rose from a root invisible to all. We know, knew the virtues, one of every weed, but unless we let you root us deep within, under the ground of being, graft us in. So again, he's taking all these biblical images, the, um, the, the 
the sower. But um, I just would encourage you to take these and use them this week in your worship. Thank you.